0: Of course, it immediately brings to mind bands from the 1970s like Mahavishnu Orchestra, Return to Forever, and Weather Report, groups that were formed by ex-members of Miles Davis's band, playing extremely complex compositions that blurred the lines between progressive rock and jazz, while still leaving room for extended improvisation. But if you think of fusion as a process rather than a style, the discussion gets a lot more interesting because then you can pull in the music being made by Yes, King Crimson, Emerson Lake and Palmer, Santana, etc. etc. all of which normally gets filed under just plain rock. And you can talk about the music Latin artists like Eddie Palmieri, Ray Barretto and the Fania All-Stars were making at the same time or the really adventurous funk and R&B that was being made by Sly and the Family Stone, Parliament, Funkadelic, The Isley Brothers, Earth, Wind & Fire, The Ohio Players, Slave, which then leads you to jazz funk names like George Duke, The Crusaders, Donald Byrd, Freddie Hubbard, Eddie Henderson, and of course, Herbie Hancock's bands, Wondy Sheehan and the Headhunters. And that's how I prefer to think about the future. It's not just a specific narrow slice of music, it's the sound of walls being knocked down across the landscape. So that's the kind of philosophical starting point for all the interviews I'm doing this season. And that's what makes Cameron Graves such a perfect person to talk to. Because he's a guy who crosses all sorts of musical boundaries. He's had a lot of classical music training, as I learned during this conversation. He spent several years studying Indian music, and obviously he's got a deep jazz background, starting out as a member of the Young Jazz Giants with Kamasi Washington and the Birder Brothers, Stephen, aka Thundercat, on bass, and his brother Ronald on drums, which evolved into the West Coast Get Down and all the albums that they've made over the last half-dozen years or so. But Cameron is also a lifelong metalhead. In fact, he played keyboards and guitar in Wicked Wisdom, the new metal band fronted by Jada Pinkett Smith in the early 2000s. So he's not only toured the world with Kamasi Washington and with Stanley Clark, because he's a member of Stanley Clark's band, too. He also played Ausfest. And here's an interesting connection. The drummer for Wicked Wisdom, was Philip Fish Fisher, the drummer for Fishbone? And when you talk about fusion as the kind of big tent umbrella sort of conceptual thing that I'm talking about, you have to include them in there. They mixed funk and hard rock and punk and metal and ska and reggae and jazz into one big swirl, particularly on their most ambitious album, The Reality of My Surroundings from 1991. There's all kinds of music on there, from Bad brain style hardcore to Last Poets-style abstract jazz poetry. And of course, they were the best live band on the planet from the mid-80s to the early 90s. Fishbone were never as big as they deserved to be, but they were absolute heroes in LA, and they were a huge inspiration to all kinds of open-minded musicians who came up in their wake. I interviewed Terrace Martin, who's an alto saxophonist affiliated with the West Coast Get Down, but is also a hip-hop producer who's worked with Snoop Dogg for years. In fact, he put together a live band for Snoop Dogg in 2010 and 2011 that included Kamasi Washington, Thundercat, Ryan Porter, who's been on this podcast before, and other people from their circle as well. And when I talked to Martin, he expressed a lot of love for Fisherman and he's now a member of Herbie Hancock's band, in addition to being part of R plus R equals now, a group that also includes Robert Glasper and Christian Scott. And Thundercat and his brother, Ronald Burner Jr. were both members of Suicidal Tendencies, playing straight up punk and thrash for years. There are so many connections between jazz and funk and metal when you look for them, and bands that combine them Various really fascinating ways. It's all fusion in the broadest sense. And another thing that's really interesting to me, anyway, is that there are so many direct connections between the West Coast Get Down guys and the 70s fusion artists. Like I said, Cameron Graves is in Stanley Clark's band, Terrace Martin is in Herbie Hancock's band, Ronald Bruter Jr. played with George Duke before Duke died. Thundercat covered a George Duke song on one of his early albums, and had Steve Harrington from Slave on his most recent record. It really is like they're the next generation of a fusion, and Cameron Graves and I talk about all this and a lot more in the interview you're about to hear. This was a really fun conversation that went in some very interesting directions, and I hope you enjoy listening to I should sort of explain what's happening. the The subject of this whole season of this podcast that I host is fusion, but I've been taking a pretty broad approach to defining that term because, like, the first person I interviewed in this series was Jeff Mills, the techno producer. Okay, and then right. after him, I talked to Lenny White, who played drums on Bitches Brew yeah, and was a member of Return to Forever, and blah blah blah. Yeah. And then, yeah, Lenny White. yeah, and after that, I talked to Randy Brecker, who played with Billy Cobham's Holy band crap. and was in the Brecker <laughs> Brothers. Now, All right. both yeah. of those guys, Lenny much more than Randy, kind of talked about how there was a difference between fusion and jazz rock. And right. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that. Like, my thinking is that fusion was one part of a whole bunch of things that were going on in the early 70s, where all the boundaries between genres were breaking down. Cause you had like George Clinton and the Isley brothers right. erasing the yeah. lines between funk and rock. You know, you had Santana yeah. making records with jazz musicians all over them. You had what Miles Davis was doing. You had the Fania all stars and Eddie Palmieri and Ray Barretto who were all blowing up Latin music's boundaries. Right. And then you had yes and King Crimson and ELP, you know, so, Yep. for about five years there, there were like no rules at all, you know? Right. So right. I guess my opening question is, what does fusion mean to you? Is it a form of music or is it a mindset?
1: I mean, fusion, <laughs> fusion, is, fusion music or fusion is exactly what fusion means. I mean, it's just, you, you, uh, you put uh, genres that, you, you put all these different genres together. It can sometimes be in the form of a concert, or it can be sometimes just in the form of one song that a band plays. They can play a song that where you can hear elements of. And now hip hop is the new hip hop is also a new form that are, is also part of that fusion. Where you know you can play a song that has elements of Latin Latin jazz, hip hop, and rock all in one, all in one song, you know, so it's just, it, a fusion is, is fusion, so you're putting together styles, mixes of styles together, you know, mm-hmm. to create, a to create one different style, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of literal, it's not really, I, I, it's not so philosophical, it's just, just literally that, you know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think the hip-hop side of it kind of gets ignored because that's something else that I've been thinking about a lot lately is the massive difference in jazz from right. musicians, let's say, under 40. Because if you're under 40, you have never known a world without hip-hop in it.
1: Yeah. you know. Whereas <laughs>
0: right. I'm 50. I remember right. before there was rap, you know?
1: Right, right, right. <laughs> So right, there's, a, no,
0: there's a lot of jazz musicians, you know, have had to kind of contend with hip hop instead of just it being the air that they breathe and the water that they swim in, like a guy your age, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, the funny thing about that is, is like it's so funny. Like swing used to be the 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 defining factor if you can play music or not. You have to know how to swing. You have to know how to bop. You know, you have to know how to bebop. That was that, that was the defining factor all the way up literally until the 90s. Then what happens is you start getting some of the best hip-hop starts coming out, man. You know, you get Timbaland and Magoo and Missy Elliott, and then you get the Slump Village and all the guys from New York. You got The Roots. You got Tribe Called Quest. You got Most Def. You got all these guys that basically what happened was so all the music programs in the schools got slashed in the 80s when when, when Reagan came into office. And what, once that happened, you didn't have music in public schools anymore. You didn't have a mandatory music class in public school where you have to, you know, because that was, that was before the 80s. It was like that. You know, I talk to my dad about this all the time. So once they slashed all the music programs, it's kind of like the same thing in, in Jurassic Park. To hear how he says, "Life finds a way." Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of what happened. Where people are musically inclined. Human beings are just musical beings. We, we are. We we. When whenever we walk, when we have a natural rhythm to our walk, whether you're a musician or not, you have a natural rhythm to your walk. You 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 hear a melody and you sing that melody all day. Gets stuck in your head. Regular people, just nine to five. Uh, you know worker you know job worker, same thing they, you know so what happens is people are just musically inclined and you know as we get into the 90s there's no music in school so what happens is people start trying to find ways to make music and the technology started coming out where you, you, you would have these kind of like samplers and stuff started happening you know uh, you know it, it, um, you would have like the user the inter- the interfaces, which is like Logic, Digital Performer, Pro Tools. Those are like the uh, kind of like the recording interfaces, the software programs, and then you would have these different samplers. And it just, that's what kids started gravitating to, was like, well, I don't know any music, I don't know how to play music, but I love the music I'm listening to, and I love this one section, and I just want to take this one section and play it over and over again And then I started hearing Different drum grooves to it And so since I can take this drum sampler That I have I'm going to put that the, the drums that I hear In my head over the sample That I just sampled And that's how you started to get That new version of music Which ended up turning into hip hop You know So, And that was kind of a fusion too If you really think about it Because then what happens is people don't know how to play music. They don't know how to, you know, read music or anything, but they start hearing different samples and they love it. And they put the, this, these drums with that sample and this, that, you know, and that's kind of a, and so, and, and so we, as growing up with that, you know, now it's so funny. Like you have to, as to, to, to be able to be considered, uh, uh, you know, a. a if you can play music or not you almost, instead of swing and bebop now it's more hip hop mm-hmm. can you play a badass hip hop group can you what's your hip what what does your hip hop sound like it's real it's it's so funny how it's kind of switched uh, almost in a way kind of evolved you know in a in a strange way
0: yeah and it's a completely different approach to time like even when guys you know are playing like a traditional drum kit you know, like right. you hear something completely different from an older generation drummer than you're going to hear from, you know, Ron Bruner Absolutely. or the or like Casa Overall or you know people like that. It's a completely Absolutely. different time.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's fun. you said mentioned Ron Bruner. Ron, if you hear Ronald Bruner Jr. versus his dad, Ronald Bruner Sr. Mm-hmm. Because they're both they're both drummers, but Ronald Bruner Sr. is the older drummer from the '70s. They, when you hear him play, and he he doesn't play he doesn't have any hip hop in his playing. His <laughs> is more funk, mm-hmm. like funk jazz, like like Headhunters, you know, and and Manchild that kind of that kind of funk jazz drumming, right? But then Ronald Bruner Jr. his son is more rooted when he goes to play a pocket type of groove. It's definitely much more rooted in hip hop rather than funk. You know what I mean? It's 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 uh, interesting to hear. It's definitely interesting to to see the difference.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let me let me ask you about about that because I interviewed a while ago. I interviewed Thundercat, and he told me that when you guys and Kamasi and everyone were all growing up, everyone kind of used to rehearse at your parents' house. So,
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, tell me a
0: little bit about those days. Like, how did you guys first become friends? Were you musicians first or friends first? Like, how did it, you know, how did it all kind of come together?
1: Well, um, it, it it was really it really um, evolves from high school. So, you know, I went to a music academy, uh, Hamilton High School, out here in Los Angeles, Culver City. Uh, That that's exactly you know first year in ninth grade it starts kind of in ninth grade you know high school and then um that's exactly when I met Kamasi you know because he was in there was a jazz band program and he was first uh first tenor in the tenor uh, in the in the saxes so the first tenor kind of sits right next to the piano in a in a jazz band setting so you know I was already kind of just sitting right next to Kamasi every single day you know in class you know, studying band charts and all that stuff. And then we kind of got pretty close quick because we both loved Coltrane. And um, so, yeah, so I, me and Kamasi went to Hamilton High School. But then uh, he, uh, uh, Ronald and Steven went to Locke High School, which is in Watts. Uh-huh. And at Locke High School, there was a teacher named Reggie Andrews. And he put together this thing called multi-school jazz band. Where he found all the he went around and tried to find all the top musicians from the high schools. There was Jefferson High School, Los Angeles High, L.A. High School, uh, Hamilton High School. There was a couple other high high schools: OSHA, uh, Loxa. These these are all kind of like music program high schools, and and Hamilton was the biggest one because they had like a huge music academy. And so you know every. Every day after school, it was kind of like an after school program that he put together. So we would he would pick us up, you know, and his he'd had like this burgundy van, and he'd pick us all up, you know, from the different high schools, and he would we would go all drive all the way back to Lock High School and watch. And you know, in the band room, we were all there, and that's kind of where I met everybody I know: uh, Ryan Porter, Terrence Martin, you know, Ronald. I that's when I met Ronald and Steven, when I went to multi-school jazz band, my first time, 10th grade. Uh, you know, I was about 16. And I remember, I definitely remember Ronald and there was another drummer named Robert and they would always battle each other, you know, drum battles. And then, you know, I'd, I'd sit in the practice room with Ronald going crazy. You know, at, at, at 16, he he was really amazing already. Mm-hmm. And we would just kind of sit in the practice room and, and get our ears blown out by him uh, going crazy. <laughs> um, but then that's that's when I met everybody. I met everybody and we would do some... Reggie Andrews was, was the real kind of jazz band teacher. He was one of those guys where it's like a lot of jazz band teachers are kind of um, just doing it for the job at the school. But Reggie Andrews was one of those that really wanted to instill and inspire jazz music inside of all of us that are pretty serious about it. You know, so he, he took he kind of like uh, sculpted us from that. He took the, the raw talent from the different high schools, put it all together and kind of sculpted it from there. Uh and and yeah, and that's when we met up and, and from multi school jazz band, me, Kamasi, Ronald Steven started doing these little tiny gigs where we would get together as like a little quartet and do these gigs. We did one where we did uh the 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 uh, kind of the foyer of Hollywood Bowl one time, kind of where people are walking in, and then we had kind of like a little residency um, uh, at the Alley Cat in Long Beach that we played, and then and then and then uh, we did our uh, first kind of like real residency at a place called Doughboys Dozens uh, off of Crenshaw. So, and then that's how we kind of developed. It. Young Jazz Giants. So we then at that point we said, okay, we're we're like Young Jazz Giants, man. We should call the band that. And then we started, and then we did a con the the John Coltrane competition where we were we're almost too young to be in the competition, but we did it, and we actually won the competition. And from that after that, that's when it kind of solidified us as the four as a quartet, where we said, oh yeah, we're 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 a band now. We're in the quartet, Young Jazz Giants. Live try to do a record you know and and that's and it just goes from there
0: yeah yeah it's interesting because i feel like that you know being thrown together in a band in high school like that is kind of what made the whole thing work it sounds like because the four of you are extremely different as individuals like you know I, i mean just from my outsider's perspective like i've interviewed thundercat i've interviewed terrace i've interviewed ryan porter you know, all of nice. you guys are very. I've interviewed Miles Mosley as well, and like yeah, all of Miles, you guys are yeah. very different individuals, and yet you mesh musically. You know, so
1: right, right. Actually, funny thing is, is Miles actually went to Hamilton, and he was he was in eleventh grade when I got there at ninth grade. So he was kind of he was at at that time when you're a ninth grader, you know, eleventh graders are kind of older than you, you know. So you're, you're looking at him. So and and Miles was actually the first one the very first one that had like this record deal. He had he was in some rock band that kind of had a record deal and that and we were all kind of like inspired by that. We were, "Oh, you know, he's, he's, he's you know, he's a rock star over there." <laughs> <laughs> and he always he, he always was that, you know. All a like, big personality on stage. So but uh yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, what kind of like Mentors what what kind of other mentors did you have coming up because I've heard that you were you know you were part of the whole world stage thing with Billy Higgins and them, but like who else were you in particular studying under as a pianist?
1: Uh, I had many many mes- uh, mentors uh, the, the first one really to be honest with you is a, a lady named Esther Lee Kaplan. Esther Lee Kaplan. She was an amazing, amazing, amazing classical pianist. And this is when, early on, I was about seven years old. From set, from about seven, I went to her from about seven to about thirteen years old. You know, where we did it was pretty much strict classical music. Now, I wasn't even really doing jazz at that time. But she was such an amazing classical teacher, and just uh, you know had so much knowledge at that time for me being that was probably my first mentor as a as a pianist you know Mm -hmm. and then and then of course my father was actually big to tell you truth, my father was another big mentor of mine in terms of when i got to 13 14 it was my dad that really started teaching me jazz first you know he was the one that because we, you know, we were always go on camping trips and stuff, and he would always be playing Stevie Wonder and Coltrane and stuff in the car. So I was always listening to that stuff. You know, my dad's a soul singer, so he was always into Jackie Wilson and Sam Cooke and Otis Redding. And, you know, I'm, I'm always listening to that stuff. And Miles, there's some, I grew up with that stuff. Jimi Hendrix. Um So by the time I get to 13, 14, I'm really good at piano now. You know, I've been doing it for about almost 12, 13 years, classical music. But my dad was the one that said, okay, it's time to really start studying jazz theory, jazz music in terms of uh, the 2-5-1 progression. And and he gave me this Joe Sample book. Joe Sample has a book that, uh, you know, has all the different jazz scales, jazz harmony theory. And he was like, here, study this. And then he gave me an Art Tatum CD. (laughs) <laughs> my dad, he was like, "Yeah, let's listen, listen to Art Tatum," and that's that's when I first heard "Elegy" by Art Tatum, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I don't. This guy is literally the god of piano. I have to try to learn this." And I, I actually tried to. I really did for a while for a number of years. I I really went in uh, and, and really tried to study that one tune, "Elegy," um, and so yeah. I mean. And then after after that, my, my after after my dad and I got to high school, then comes Reggie Andrews, who's another mentor, you know, from the from the multi school jazz band, uh, you know, Reggie Andrews. And then by the time I get to to college, which is like UCLA, I went to UCLA for two years with Kamasi and Miles. Um, you know, I never really I never graduated because I, I started going on tour after a while, so I was like, you know, this is that's what I want to do, um, but at UCLA, um, there's a very famous trombone player named George Bohannon. Sure, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, George Bohannon. And I was part of his jazz combo class. He would he had a jazz combo class. And um, uh, me, Corey Hogan, a couple other musicians, you know, we studied under George Bohannon, and he was another mentor of mine that was just very inspiring and really taught us how to really kind of listen uh, listen to each other, work, uh, play off of each other, uh, listen to different tunes, write new tunes for the jazz combo. So we'd be writing originals for the jazz combo. So it just kind of started getting us into that, you know, and, um, and yeah. And then also there was Gerald Wilson too. He also taught at uh, UCLA. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I was, I um, was definitely in his class a lot, you know, but then I I broke off you know from jazz and I started doing a lot of Indian music. I loved 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 Indian music. By the time I got to UCLA, as part of the ethnomusicology program, and they and I saw somebody play tabla for the first time, and I was like, what is that? I gotta I have to learn that. And I literally went for three almost almost three years. It was two years of UCLA, and then and after that a year after that where I was doing like six, seven hours a day on Tabla, man. I was, I was going crazy. Wow. Uh, yeah, no, Indian music was a big part of my life. Um, there's a teacher named Abhiman Kaushal. He's a, a Tabla player. He played with Ravi Shankar and stuff. And uh, he was a big mentor of mine in terms of just just life and music and, and just philosophy and just, you know, a different perspective because Indian musicians have a – kind of a little bit different perspective on how to practice and, and the dedication to your instrument and all that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing
0: that'll, that'll change your whole appreciation for time because those guys are, you know, it ebbs and flows, but it goes for
1: fucking hours. Like, yes, (laughs) Yes. Yes. They're amazing. Yes. Like the, 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 the way they count uh, stuff and you know, the, the ten beat rhythms and the five beat rhythms, and it just is—it's amazing. It's am- and then and then they do this thing called. This is this is really special because I got this specifically from uh, Indian musicians. Indian music is—they do this thing called a chilla. A chilla is basically a dedication for literally forty days straight, where it's twelve hours a day, every day for forty days, no food, no water, hands don't even leave the instrument. Literally, and it's like this meditational thing that they do to basically get to the upper levels of ability on their instrument, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, Abhiman told me he did it twice in his life, actually. Or he did it twice, and he said it was like, you know, after a while, your hands are falling off, you can't even really play anymore, and then and then something something magical happens, like it's just like all these. Deep things that are in your subconscious start coming out on your instrument, you know, and you just, you just arrive at a different place in your abilities. It's, it's amazing. I, I've i never really done it yet, like an actual chiller like that. But, um, you know, I, I mean, I got close, I got pretty close, but that's like a serious, serious meditational kind of dedication, dedicated practice. Yeah. Of, yeah. You know, yeah.
0: It's funny because I can kind of hear elements of what you're describing in your approach to the piano because there's there's that precision that comes out of classical, you know, but there's also that kind of relentlessness that comes out of Indian music, you know, the ability to just play a pattern and just repeat it until the end of time,
1: you know. Right, right. Right, absolutely, and the and the amazing chops they have too. You know, they have they have their own version of that kind of stuff. Stuff. So yeah, yeah, definitely big. That was a big influence, and like I said, abby Monkasha was another kind of mentor. He was also at UCLA. It was a UCLA thing, you know. And then I have many more as we go on. You know, um Leon Ware was another one. Uh, I worked for a long time with Leon Ware. He was. He's an amazing songwriter. You know, he wrote all the Marvin Gaye records and stuff. Mm. And that was more me and my brother got hooked up with him. Me, actually, me, Taylor, my brother Taylor, and Ronald Steven. You know, we did kind of like a brother-to-brother thing uh, with Leon Ware. That's, that's the first time I went to Japan was with Leon. You know, and that's actually why I had to drop out of school <laughs> because of that. But 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 it was one of the best experiences I've ever had and uh it really got us going in terms of the world of uh touring writing songs trying to put bands together trying to get deals that whole thing
0: yeah yeah I'm curious about the record that you put out last year, Seven, because, okay, well first of all, it, it was very interesting musically because it reminded me in some ways of like 70's King Crimson, sort of crossed with Return to Forever. It was very, it had that like bombastic, you know, progressive, very like, you know, very locked in kind of thing, but I'm curious because it came out last year, but like a publicist that I know sent a version of it to me in like the summer of twenty nineteen. So why did that album <laughs> sit on the shelf for so long? What happened there?
1: Uh, to tell you the truth, it was literally just COVID. You know, uh, because we I was going to come out earlier, uh, but um, but then all this all the the, the whole pandemic kind of happened. And I, you know, at, you know that, because see the thing is, is I saw Steven put out, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the record. He put that out mid 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was April. Um, and 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 even for Steven, you know, for Thundercat's records, like it, it kind of fell flat, you know, just because of the pandemic. And so I saw that, and I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to put it out just yet because you know it's it's. It's iffy right now because it's it's just a tumultuous time, so yeah. I kind of just I, yeah, I waited, I waited and I waited until I waited until after first first it was the pandemic, and then there was an election, you know what I mean, it was mm-hmm. just like back to back, not uh, just craziness, uh, you know, for <laughs> a second there. So I waited until after the craziness was done. To then release the record, and I thought I, th- I thought it. I, I actually appreciated the release date of it because it came after a time. It came at a time when it was like, okay, we've been through all this crap now. We've been through the pandemic. We went through the election. We, you know, yeah, the the January sixth uh, uh, insurrection and the whole thing. So it to me it was kind of like a a very cool uh, thing where I, you know uh, it. it, it I guess you could say it was it 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 was a a break from all of that, and it and it made people kind of kind of enjoy like a, an influence, enjoy kind of a musical influence for a second. It 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 was kind of like a the eye of the storm. There was it everything calmed down for a second, and then I dropped the record at that point. Yeah. So. Yeah.
0: It's funny because when when the Thundercat record came out, I remember. I, you know, that was when I interviewed him, was on the press cycle for that record when he was in New York. Right. And I feel like, thinking about it now, I think that might have been the last time I was in New York. And I have not been to New York City since.
1: Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I I get it, yeah. Yeah, Yeah.
0: it's been like two years and that was probably the last time I was in the city was I went to a hotel, hung out with him, you know, and did the thing, and that was... That was it, you know locked myself in yeah. locked myself in my house after that, oh,
1: I know, I know, I know it's it's you know the and and the funny thing is the the music industry is just now starting to come back you know it, it that the music industry took i would say the hardest hit because we you're talking about an industry that survives and thrives on being able to pack out concerts or pack out clubs or pack you know you gotta that's the whole deal that's where the whole that's where the 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 the, it's lucrative that's the that's where the music business at this point is lucrative is in the live shows and you know for a live show it's all about you know trying to pack out the place Mm -hmm. and for the last couple of years like (laughs) you know you couldn't do that at all that was kind of off limits so that you was know. when
0: I knew it was bad, was when the announcement went out that there wasn't going to be South by Southwest. That was when right. everybody that mm-hmm. I know went, oh, shit. <laughs> this right. is like a, yeah. a for real thing. You know? This is
1: a for real thing. Oh, yeah, man. And it was, it was crazy. Like the first, in the beginning of 2020, I mean, a, a lot of people, I even talked to Steven, our calendars were packed, just booked up all the way to, to the end of the year and literally those all those bookings just 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 flew away like dust in the wind <laughs> <It> just <laughs> left you know what i mean yep. it was crazy there for a second yeah uh, so you know that's why that's that's why the record didn't drop earlier yeah yeah
0: now you changed out your whole band on that record aside from two solos from kamasi there was like nobody from the west coast get down on it so what inspired that decision and who are the other people that you're playing with like where did you get them
1: yeah so um you know i've always been into i'm i'm a metalhead to be honest with you that's another great influence of mine you know i uh i i was in jay pinkett's band for a long time with the wisdom and uh i actually to the, the team, I got her into the middle man because she was more into rock and then I started bringing around like some of the, the hard stuff, and she started getting into it, and that's what kind of got us into writing that record and putting it out, doing all the stuff and stuff. So, I have that whole influence, and um, that influence stays with me. Once you're, you once a metalhead, always a metalhead, man. It just it never goes away. You just love the power of that stuff.
0: Absolutely. And
1: um, <laughs> the the guys from the West Coast get down like the 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 you know see like not all of them are kind of into that stuff into that character of music right mm-hmm. and so the guys that i have on the record so i i was um touring for a long time with stanley clark actually mm-hmm. you know i started touring with him uh 2014 and that went all the way till now literally i'm still done i even have some gigs booked uh, this year with him but um and so he uh found these Two young young musicians becca gochish really who's a, a brilliant piano player from georgia the country of georgia mm-hmm. um uh and uh a guy named mike mitchell who is from dallas uh texas and uh you know i kind of hit it off with them like i got in the band we started touring and once you once you're touring you kind of just become brothers you know you are just you're with each other all the time the tour bus all the time all uh, the stages and and your your chemistry just starts coming together you know on stage and so me and Mike had a really great chemistry and Mike just happens to be kind of like the uh kind of like a Ronald protege where he grew up listening to Ronald and uh he really matured into into just like an amazing drummer man you know Mike is he's got the same amount of chops same amount of influences, the feel, time, pocket—it's just amazing. It's amazing. So, you know, when I really started kind of getting into doing doing the Planetary Prince gigs and stuff, I was like, "Hey, man, uh, I would love for you to, to play with me." And uh, he was—he asked me if I had a bass player. If I, if I have a bass player, and uh, you know, I I told him I had a bunch of gigs that I got coming up, and I don't really have a bass player. So he, hey, if you want to use my guy Max from Dallas, who's one of my best friends, Uh, he's an amazing bass player, he can read, he plays upright, he plays electric, just like Stanley, and so I said, yeah, so at first, it was just a trio, I took those guys out, 2018, my first Planetary Prince tour, it was like a month long, Mm -hmm. we did all the European dates, and it was just, it just went really well, and I started writing, at that point, I started writing these new tunes that were more, compositional base. A lot of the stuff from the early from the Planetary Prince record was more improvisational based um, because of the piano bar influence that we had where we had this residency in Hollywood for like 10 years uh, where where it called the piano bar and that's how that's how the west coast get down kind of really came together uh, the 10 all 10 of us you know that's that's where we got popular that's where we wrote a lot of our tunes, a lot of the tunes that you hear off the Epic record, the tunes you hear off the Planetary Prince record, all those tunes were were written and nurtured at the piano bar at the residency for like literally 10 years. And so that's why it was easy for Kamasi to grab all 10 of those guys when he started taking off to go on tour because there really was no rehearsal. We we knew each other's tunes so well from playing them all the time. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what we did in the west coast get down and at the piano bar was improvisational bass so that means that you bring a tune just like a just like a jazz tune you bring a head you bring a chart your chart just has like a head where you play the melody with the chord changes and after that you go into solos and then you just everybody takes a solo on the tune and it's just at during the solos is when all the magic happens with the band you know all the different grooves different rhythms different we're going all kinds of different places and uh and so yeah but i started getting more into compositional bass tunes because of metal because of my metal influence and because that's how metal is metal is pure compositional there's really no improvisation unless you unless you have a guitar solo you know yeah but yeah exactly the shows
0: are very like Ritualistic in a way, and that's what the audience demands. You know, absolutely. They know exactly is, how just, the song is supposed to go, and that's what they yeah. want to hear.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that was very. That's similar to how Return of Forever was doing. A lot of Return of Forever stuff was compositional based because Chick Corea was literally writing out those lines and stuff that they were playing. Mm-hmm. You know, and and then and then you get to a solo section, and then you. Then you might go off on the solo section, but then you come back and the whole band plays the lines and and the tune all the way to the end. So that you know, I started really messing around with that kind of stuff. Um, you know, compositional based, um, based off of kind of a piano, uh, kind of a classical piano version that I could put the band on top of. and then it sounds like a sounds like this huge rock tune you know and so i started kind of uh adding those tunes into my set as we were a trio in 2018 during that tour and it just worked perfectly and then um and then there was another drummer that i know that introduced me to the guitar player colin cook mm-hmm. who's also on the record as a guitar player and uh and colin is just an amazing guitar player he sounds he, he sounds like yes the whole alan holsworth kind of um, influence you know just a lot of chops and that and that same type of tone that alan alan would get like it's like a really round round kind of tone uh and it's, it's just amazing so colin i got colin in there and that's when it really came together you can really hear a lot of those tunes where it's like you know because that's what I, I was going after that i was going after metal jazz Right. not mm-hmm. really rock jazz we're going after metal jazz where it's like it you, you have the blast beats maybe you have and that's why i call it thrash jazz because um it, it you know it has a lot of the blast beats it has a lot of the drop the drop uh beats you know when you go you have like a heavy section that comes you know and then i would i i just kind of melded it in with you know, where you'd have a heavy section and then you, you come back into a lighter, kind of more jazz section, and then it goes back into heavy or or like a blast type of beat, you know, like a mosh pit type of thing, you know, and I was just kind of experimenting. And these guys just... The, the, the thing that sold me on this quartet that I used on the record was the first rehearsal we had, these guys played it, it that, like, amazingly, they had it down the first day. There was no real... We only did like one rehearsal before we went into the studio and recorded that stuff. Wow, <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah, that's how, that's how amazing those guys are, man, so that that's and, and and it just it came together from there.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean when I listen to the record, you can tell that it's very tightly composed because not only just the tightness of it, because like you know it's like what you were describing with "Return to Forever," like you can't improvise your way to that you know no right. matter how good you are you cannot get four dudes and improvise and achieve that you know it's yeah. got to be on the page and it, yeah also yeah the the pieces are much shorter than on your first record you know they're like 3 4 minutes bang 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 you know get the idea hammer it down and and move on you know and so yeah yeah you can tell immediately that it's very sort of composition based and that's what i think is is so you know, is so fascinating to me. And that's what I think makes that record something new and unprecedented because of that, you know, that sense of composition and that sense of right. you know, intricacy. So
1: Yeah, yeah, a lot of times, you know, improvisational is great, but sometimes improvisation can float too much. And people sometimes get lost when it floats too much like that. You know, it's just, you just hear it kind of this mundane floating until we kind of lock into something. The, the composition is basically what that does is, you know, it, it, you're playing something exactly what you just said, something that you wouldn't really be able to improvise unless you, you can't improvise your way to that.
0: You, it has
1: to be on the page to, and then what happens is when the band plays that stuff, it's just, so locked in that you it in you can literally feel it in your gut how locked it is right mm-hmm. and then during the solo section you release that lock for the improv you know and then and then come back to the composition for you know to to close out the tune and to lock it back up and and that dynamic between locking it and then letting it go that that's that's what gives you that amazing kind of experience you know i feel you yeah know.
0: yeah This live album coming out this month, which is your second digital-only release, because there was that bonus EP after the Planetary Prince record. So, right. like, yeah. does that bother you at all? Like, what's your attachment to physical music? Does it does it bug you to have something come out that's just digital? <laughs>
1: uh, n- not, no. Actually, it doesn't bother me. Um, as long as music is, as long as I'm putting out the the information As long as I'm putting out The music And it's out there You know It's kind of like I've, I've You know the, the flag is in the sand Here it is And um, You know Whether it's digital or physical It doesn't really bother me I do like However At concerts uh, To have Like Vinyl Vinyl is really works well It's kind of like A collector's item You know mm-hmm. And I like to uh, I, I always like to have you know, vinyl with my records, um, but but the idea that it, it's it's about releasing the music so that the legacy is there, the the information is there, you know, the 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 inspiration is there, and people can hear that, um, uh, you know, and you know, and 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 it it sucks now these days where you, you can't see because like the physical copies are, are so, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, you have the booklet and you can read about it and stuff like that. And that's always really exciting. But unfortunately the younger generation just doesn't have, they, they don't really care about that. You know, they don't really, they don't really read the liner notes and stuff like that anymore. So it, uh, yeah.
0: And a lot it, of people it, are only yeah. making like 500 copies anyway, you know? Yeah. Yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's, and 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 a lot of the ways that people listen to music a lot of the ways that they buy music is just literally through their phone now you just go to Apple music or you go to Spotify you just download it or the Apple music you download it you know and so it's just it's just the way that the medium has changed and uh, and 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 to sell music to, to, to put out music to sell music we're just we're we're literally trying to uh, find our way through the through the, the the industry as the industry is just in this big change, you know. Yeah. In the way and the in the way it is, the way how to sell music, how to do it do it all. It's just in a big change. And I think that it's it's a little bit behind, to tell you the truth. It's a little bit behind. You know, we uh, I think the, the the industry could still uh, be pushed further into the technological age that we're in with the every with especially you know cuz it's a new it's a new time right tiktok is the is the next platform of performance and showing what you got and you know showing you know it's never going to be like showing up to the club and watching a band play live it's never going to be like that mm-hmm. but tiktok is the new showing up to the club to see the band perform or showing up to, to see the musician perform. It's the, it's the new thing. Right. So it's like, it's, you know, I, it's another thing I talk with my dad about all the time, cause he's super old school, you know, he's, he's 73. So he, he definitely, you know, he, he comes from the old times when, you know, those guys, you know, those guys like return forever. Like if, if Stanley always tells me if the West coast get down was back in the seventies, We'd all be, like, literally kings. They would have thrown... Record companies would have thrown advances at us, man. 300 grand here, 500 grand there. You know, it was like that back then. But unfortunately, it's just completely, completely changed, you know?
0: Yeah, it's funny. That was the, one of the first things that I said when I, when I first heard Kamasi's record in 2015. Like, I said, you know, if this was the 70s, these guys would all be on CTI you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and that's yeah. a good thing, you know, those were great yeah. records, and it's, it's really, it's interesting, the thing with Stanley, because a lot of you guys are kind of connected to that generation, because, for example, you know, Terrace plays with Herbie, you're in Stanley's band, you know, uh, Ron Bruner Jr. played with George Duke before he died, you know, like, there's, yeah that was the generation that broke all those boundaries down, you know, and now you guys are of kind of connect, you know, directly in touch with that. And I'm, I'm interested yeah. by your role in Stanley's band because you're playing synths and someone else is on piano. And that's interesting <laughs> yeah. to me because when I listen to your stuff, I feel like you're very anchored to the piano. Like one time I, I interviewed Cecil Taylor And I asked him if he had ever played a synth or a Fender Rhodes or anything like that. And the look that he gave me was just unbelievable, you know? And he he said to me, he goes, why would I do that? That's not a piano. And if I was just (laughs) to listen to your solo albums, I would almost feel like you had a similar attitude. Because the pianoness of the piano seems really crucial to your approach. So... When you're playing synth with him, how does it feel, and what do you
1: get out of it? That's funny. That's a funny thing that you said about Cecil, man. You know, Cecil. <laughs> Cecil kind of. I mean, that's you know, a lot. It's, it's the older, the older generation, the older you get with the generations, like it's it, you know, it's like that. I mean, I, I grew up with keyboards. You know, I I grew up. I, you know, when I was 18, we had like this pop band called YM, and we got signed to MCA under Randy Jackson, uh, believe it or not, and <laughs> when Randy Jackson was at MCA, and that was like a pop group, it was almost like a boy band with instruments, mm-hmm. and during that time, we were, it was all keyboard, you know, me, my brother, and all of us, and you know, it was all keyboard, so... And, and I got started kind of doing production in the studio when I was like 16, doing hip-hop and doing pop and doing R&B and making tracks and recording people. So then I have that influence, too, where I was always using a keyboard in the studio to, and messing around with different sounds and different grooves and stuff like that. So keyboard is definitely – keyboards, synth sounds, sound design is definitely not uh, foreign to me. I've always done that. But but uh, you know my bass is piano and that's what I love. I love getting on a great nine foot grand or a seven the Yamaha C seven or something and just the beauty of it, you know, and and the sound and the, the just the the acoustics. I mean, you you, you can't beat that. Mm-hmm. You, you never will. Um, so you know, in Stan when I got with Stanley and I, I was kind of, I was kind of. Mad a little bit that when he hired me first, he said, "Now I have this other piano player, and you'll you'll hear him. He's he's a pretty crazy piano player. So I'm gonna I'm actually gonna ask. So I'm I'm gonna put you on keyboards. You're gonna be playing keys as a piano player. And when I got off the call, I was thinking to myself, like, why the hell would you hire me to play keys if you know I'm from the West Coast? Get down! I've been you know the L.A. collective. You see me all the time playing piano." But to tell you the truth, Stanley is see he's a, he's he's he thinks differently, man. He he must have heard in me that a composer. I swear he did because he used to talk to me about that a lot. And the reason why he put me on keyboards is to hone those skills, the composition skills, but more like a composer, like a like a film composer. Mm. He wanted me to hone my film composer skills by playing keyboards beside a piano player. Because now what he was making me do a lot of times, training me to do in when we would have the rehearsals and this and that, was don't play Rhodes while the piano player is playing piano. He did not like that. He wanted me to find some other stuff, play something else, play a different idea, play to pull out some mallets pull out some strings pull out this that right and it was one of the most it was one of the best most refreshing experiences I had in terms of because he he hurt me I did he was he probably at some point be like oh this guy this guy could you know do do film film scores and stuff he he's, he's up in there so let I'm gonna put him on a keyboard and, and really train him train them in that way and it really did because you know having another piano player on the other side it's like okay now what am i going to play and so Mm -hmm. i had to really dig deep and get into sounds and sound design and really figure out okay how do i orchestrate this music underneath what the piano player is playing and uh and i really appreciated uh, stanley for doing that (laughs) In and, the end and plus that you've got good.
0: to contend with him because he's like a lead bass so
1: and exactly exactly <laughs> and 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 I had and basically I had to do that too so I would have a, a, move, a mini move right so I'd have my keyboards and I'd have a mini move because I'd have to play bass when he wants to play like solos and melodies and stuff so also had that and what that ended up being was like part of my orchestra right so my first keys was all my Strings and mallets and stuff, and then I'd have a second keyboard that was kind of pads and things like that, and then I'd have the mini move. And the mini move ended up being kind of like, you know, if you had the double bass or the or the the um, you know, the uh, the, the 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 double basses in the in the orchestra playing like the low end parts, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it was it was a cool experience. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I want to just ask you quickly about one other record that you made, because I noticed you did an, a record with Michelle Coltrane, which I think is probably the most straightforward jazz-jazz record in your catalog. And so I'm curious <laughs> what that, you know, what that session was like. What, you know, what you uh, what you took away from that.
1: Yeah, that's so funny that you asked about that. You know, I I, I was working with Michelle for a, a long time actually. Uh, just because I, uh, you know, I had a lot of um, admiration for her just because, you know, that she's the closest you can get to Coltrane. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I would always be asking her about, like, you know, stories. You know, what was it like growing up and being a little kid around Coltrane and all that stuff, man. She she has a lot of stories. It's, it's really cool. And so I ended up doing a lot of, like, gigs. She would have these little gigs that she would do I, I when I was playing with her and Then uh, those gigs turned into her really trying to put like a record together and she called me to do the sessions And they were really fun. they were really fun. And it's really cool hanging out uh, with Michelle Coltrane because she's you know, she's 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 young. She has a young mentality I mean, she's not like uh, that you know, she's I think she's probably like three, five or something like that, but she she has like a young mind, you know, and um and she and and of course she has uh, kids that are her kids are like in their 20s or early 30s or whatever so you know she's pretty, she's really connect she's really well connected to like the younger generation so she understands everything and it, it was just really cool hanging out with her and talking with her that's 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 a big reason why i would do her gigs because i just wanted to be close to the to the coltrane name man, and and then and the legacy and just talk to her about all the stories and try to see if I could uh, get some Coltrane mojo from her, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Yeah. 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 And it was, it was pretty traditional and straight ahead, which I like doing that stuff too. You know, I I always like to go back and do that kind of jazz where it's like a trio or quartet and it's pretty, it's just, you know, traditional, maybe post bop. You know, maybe like a modal, modal type of jazz. That's my favorite kind of stuff. You know, mm-hmm. because because McCoy, I would have to say that McCoy Tyner is like my bass. That that was the first piano player that I was like really listening to. Man, that I was like, oh my gosh, this guy's amazing. You know, I mean Art Tatum was one, but then McCoy was the one that I really studied with with Kamasi. Me and both me and Kamasi would be listening to Coltrane all the time and listening to. Uh, Tyner, and and we you know we play transitions and then we play the real McCoy all the time passion dance all the time you know just just really you know we we're like fanboys you know <laughs> mm-hmm. of that stuff me and me and Kamasi and that and and that's that was the basis for Young Jazz Giants because we wanted to try to put together that same uh, Coltrane quartet you know with you know me Ronald Steven, and Kamasi we were kind of trying to mimic you know the 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 train train's quartet
0: you know yeah but when you actually because i've heard that album and when you listen when i listen to it it goes right back to what we were talking about at the beginning of how the feeling of time is different because it doesn't swing the way an album from 1964 would swing it swings in a completely you know it swings in like a like not only a, a post hip hop way, but in like a post fishbone way in like a post, you know, sort That's of funny. Yes. You know, that kind of a thing. Yes. <laughs> you know,
1: yeah. We brought those different influences. Absolutely. You know, and especially with, with Ronald playing drums, he always, he always has those kinds of influences in there. He, he, you know, he, he goes to a lot of different places and, and Ronald's pocket is amazing. You know, when he, when he you know he, he really focuses in and he says I'm I'm going to play pocket on this on this song you know it's just so deep you know and and you know he can make people dance immediately <laughs> mm-hmm. so uh, so yeah yeah absolutely yeah.
0: it's always so interesting to me the the whole like when you hear different when you hear drummers put into sort of unexpected situations like the one thing that I'm always fascinated by is al foster who played drums with miles from 73 to 75 but he's like a hardcore bebop drummer that was not the situation that he wanted to be in necessarily playing these like hard funkadelic kind of beats you know and yet that was what miles asked for and he's like all right you know kick and snare here we go you know yeah
1: yeah (laughs) it's so fascinating
0: to hear how he adapted to that
1: yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And that it has to happen. See, I appreciate Miles for doing that. And to tell you the truth, I would have to consider like Stanley Clark to be the new, the kind of the the new Miles of today because he's kind of like that too, man. He, we all come from his school of, you know, Stanley Clark's School of Music, and uh, he's like that too. He he he'll put you in a situation that's kind of out of your element that'll make you go what why am I doing this this is this is not I don't understand why I'm doing this but then when you start really getting into it it really stretches your mind it it, it helps you become a better musician by you know it, it stretches your abilities you you take on the task and you just do it and you you end up developing something new that you can put in your bag of 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 repertoire you know mhm Mm-hmm. And so I understand where Miles was coming from with with that, and you know, and a lot of times he would get a lot of the younger musicians. And Miles, Stanley does that same thing. Stanley is the same way today. He goes for the really, he he got that from Miles, you know, where you try to bring up the young musicians, take get the young musicians, bring them in the band, you know, and and put them in kind of like uncomfortable positions, but it, knowing that you're um, you're really sculpting them in a way um and and making amazing musicians the the creation of amazing musicians you know
0: yeah yeah absolutely